saw one of these little uh, bad boys. This is a message note sheet that will hopefully give you a preview of where we're headed in our message. Some, of, some people like to fill it out and take notes. Others just like to sort of look at it and try to make sense of what the crazy pastor is talking about. So whatever floats your boat, that there is, is there with you. And on the flip side of that is also the growth group questions for this week if you're in a growth group here at Bethlehem. Um, so this, this yesterday, last night, or when, when is the exact time actually? So we, we gained an hour, right? And we're all going, yes, this is the best day of the year. It doesn't matter what kind of day we have. It's, we started off on a great foot. Now, uh, for, for those of you who kind of know your, your U.S. facts and trivia and stuff, in the continental United States, the 48 states, um, one of them does not have daylight savings time. Which one is it? Arizona. And there used to be another one, too. What was the other one? Hawaii is the other one, but that's not Continental 48. Indiana was, yeah, what was, is the other one, but they've kind of conformed now to culture. And living in Arizona for five years, there was just a glorious thing where I got to not have to worry about setting every single clock in the house. And, you know, it's just this glorious thing. Um, and so <laughs> as I look at that, I'm like, well, you know what? It was kind of nice last night having Halloween and having an extra hour of sleep. So maybe we could, you know, get the both, best of both worlds. But, you know, kudos to Arizona. Kudos to Arizona. They're, they're just the renegades of the, the, the United States. They do whatever they want. I hear they even eat scorpions for breakfast sometimes. It's a little bit of an inside joke if you know uh, Janet Brewer. Anyway, um, as we look at the, at the series Navigating Culture, through weeks one and three, that's kind of what we've been talking about. The 48 states are all doing one thing, or the 47, or whatever, and here we are, the only one that's different. And so for weeks one through three, this is what we've been talking about, navigating culture. How do we react when we as Christians are now facing a culture that many are calling post-Christian? With the laws, with just the mindset, with the general morality of our our culture around us, it is no longer as Christian-friendly as it used to be. And and I would argue that train has left the station and we're never going to go back to the way things were before. And so we're in uncharted territories. The landscape is changing around us. So how do we as Christians navigate that? Here in week four, we're going to change this up just a little bit. We've been talking about navigating culture. Today we're going to talk about this. In this sense, we're navigating culture. What if culture had a steering wheel and you were at the helm? What if you could navigate culture? What, what, where would you go with it? And how would you get there? If you could steer the culture around us in any direction possible, where would you go? And maybe you're thinking, well, that's a stupid question to ask because we don't have that right or that ability. Um, we can't take the keys to culture and start driving around. And you're right, we can't take the keys. You have to earn them, which is why it's an important question. If you could navigate, if you could steer culture like you steer a ship, where would you set it and how would you get there? And, and it's interesting, as we've gone through this series, I've, I've met with our, our Nexus teen group, and I've, I've asked them questions about this, like, how do you feel culture is? What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on the uh, Supreme Court legalizing gay marriage? And I, I'm sort of asking them these questions. And on the other end, I'm meeting with our really old people, too. <laughs> Sorry. So, and, and I'm talking to them, and I'm saying, well, what's your feel about culture? How are things headed? And, you know, and I sort of get their take because they've been in, in culture for a long, 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 long time. And I, I get different. I'm done. I'm done picking on old people. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting completely different feedback from both sides. The young generation, they're like, what's the big deal? 
And not, not in the sense that they don't lament the, the way we're at in culture. And the older, cult, and the older crowd, you know, there's, there's much more of that. Why can't, we, why can't we just have things the way they used to be? It used to be so much better, so much clearer, all this other stuff. And there's kind of this divide amongst us. Not divide. There's different ideas about where we would steer culture if we were at the steering wheel. And I'm going to put on the first fill-in up, up on the screen right away just to set something in your mind, and it's this. It's okay to be uncertain about today. And what I mean is this. We've talked about so many things in this series already that just drive us to uncertainty. How do you manage the tension between grace, which reaches out to everybody, and truth, which holds on to what God says? How do you manage that tension? Maybe there's some uncertainty how do you approach the world with, trace, with truth and grace when you're not supposed to judge the world? We talked about that in week two. That's going to present some uncertainty as you try to navigate those waters. How do you react when the younger brother comes home who had squandered off all of dad's wealth and dad re- welcomes him back and starts to give him gifts? How should we react? And Ben talked about that last week in the story of the prodigal son, how we need to take our blinders off sometimes. You know, there's maybe these uncertainties that we have to wrestle through, but, but that's okay as we manage that tension with grace and truth. Here's what's not okay. It's not okay if we're unclear about where we need to go. We need to be absolutely certain as individuals and as a church, where is it that we would steer culture if we had the opportunity? Where would we take it and how would we get there? And the way you answer that question is so important because even though you might not be at the wheel right now, how we act will determine whether or not culture wants to hand us the keys. And just to, to draw this tension out a little bit more, there is a lot of, un- I'm going to make up a new word. I put it in the PowerPoint and I realize it's not a word, so I just have to stick with it. There's a lot of unclarity, unclarity in our, in our world, especially among Christians, about where we would take culture if we were given the chance, and especially about how to get there. Here's the first, I'm, and I'm going to put four things up here, and I'm not saying all of these are absolutely right, and I'm not saying these are absolutely wrong. I just want to get you thinking, is this where we want to take culture, and is this how we want to get there? Some Christians say we need to form a unified voting block. Christians just need to all get together and say, you know what, we're all going to vote for the same thing, the same person, the same whatever. We're going to be united, and if we do that, um, the, the uh, demographics say that we will win every single election and every single ballot. of the population is just evangelical Christians, not counting all the other ones. If we could just form a unified voting block, we could make a difference in our culture. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Is that the way we want to steer this ship? Um, Another way, this is kind of the opposite. Some Christians say we should be apolitical. We should separate from politics altogether because politics are the devil. We're not of this world. We're of a different world. God is our king. And so there's some Christians who go on the other end and say we should completely separate from any politics and stay away from voting booths altogether. Now, again, I'm not saying one's right and I'm not saying one's wrong. But I think the extreme of both of them is is not what we're looking for. We'll talk about that more in a second. Here's another thing that uh, presents unclarity. Some Christians say, you know what? We'll know if we're navigating in the right direction if people hate us. Because Jesus said, if you're my disciples, this world's going to hate you. And so as long as people hate us, we know we're doing something right. 
And I, I've, that's, that's an honest thing that even pastors use sometimes. When people hate us or when uh, people leave the church, we, we, say, we go to fellow pastors and we say, oh, I did this, and I did this, and I feel bad. And like, don't worry. You're being faithful. You're being hated. That's the way we're supposed to be. And, and then here's the opposite. Others say, well, if we're being loved, we know we're doing the right thing. And how do you measure love? Numbers. Numbers, numbers, numbers. And this is such a big thing in church world. We all love to count numbers and measure numbers. If, if we're getting more people, if we're increasing, that means we're navigating culture in the right way. So you can just see on the screen, there's all this unclarity about how we would navigate culture forward, where we would go, and how we would get there. And, and all these things, by the way, will be settled in just a moment. But first of all, just the unclarity and the uncertainty we have today is nothing, it's nothing compared to what Christians were facing 1,950 years ago. You see, we in the United States of America today, we have the freedom of speech. I have the right to stand up here and offend anybody I want to, like I did just a moment ago. With, yeah. <laughs> and I don't have to worry about being arrested because I have the freedom of speech. Uh, back then, 1950 years ago, if they got up publicly and started speaking about their faith in Jesus, they could be arrested. If I was even arrested today, I had the right to a fair trial. Um, back then, they didn't have so much of that right to a fair trial. Um, I, I'm not subject to cruel and unusual punishment. These are all my rights in the Bill, in, in the bill of Rights. I, I'm protected from cruel and unusual punishment. Christians 1950 years ago were put on crosses and thrown into coliseums with bears and lions. How would you like to navigate their culture for a while? How do you steer that ship? Now, here's the amazing thing. There was actually a group of Christians 1950 years ago that had this, this extraordinary clarity about how to move forward as a church. And of all the places to see this clarity, it's actually recorded for us in a thank you note. Okay, this is crazy. What happened was the Apostle Paul had, had gone through the, the region, planting churches, gathering people, sharing the gospel. And in one of these places, a city called Philippi, some Christians gathered together and they formed a church and they supported the Apostle Paul in his mission work. And so years later, Paul writes this letter to them to say thank you. A thank you note. And by the way, thank you note, notes are small. Uh, Philippians is only four chapters, and for Paul, that's a short letter. He, he's a windy, uh, long-winded guy. So what we're going to do is to, to see their clarity in how to navigate culture and also to learn for ourselves how do we navigate culture. Uh, we're going to look at this section from Philippians chapter 1 to see what they knew that we can learn from. So returning to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, here's simply the, the, the start of the thank you letter. Paul says, I thank my God. Every time I remember you. And we'll talk about why in a second. Um, he's thankful. He's thankful. He goes on in verse 4. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And Real quickly, here's what you need to know about these people that he's writing to. <clears throat> when Paul first came to Philippi, it's this Roman colony and so a lot of affluent people. He, he, the first uh, Sabbath day, he went out and he's trying to find people and he goes to a river where he knows some people will be having this little prayer service or whatever they're having. 
So Paul goes there. He meets this woman named Lydia who was very wealthy. She had this uh, business that she ran with fine cloth. And it says as soon as he started speaking to her about Jesus, the spirit just clicked in her heart. And she welcomed the message. She, she, she understood what he was saying. And she's, she basically said this. This is in Acts chapter 16. It's a cool story. She says, hey, if you think I'm a believer, then come stay at my house. In other words, if you think that I'm with you, come stay at my house. And so they actually set up a church right there in her house. So literally from the first day Paul entered the city of Philippi, he was welcomed and he could see the Spirit's work going right away. Now, there's a long range in in time here. He says from the first day until now. What's happening now is Paul has actually been to Philippi a couple times. He went through again and again and again and he, he kept encouraging them. And what happened was this congregation, they said, you know what? We don't just want to change things here in Philippi. We want to change the world. And so they continued to give these generous gifts to the Apostle Paul so that he could go to city to city to city all across the place to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. Okay? Now, one more thing. One last thing to know, and then we'll we'll move on, I promise. The other thing that they did, they didn't just give him financial gifts. They, They actually sent him a helper. They gave him manpower. So after the Apostle Paul had been arrested in Rome under house arrest, waiting for for a trial, basically, uh, they sent a guy to go and just spend time with him, to be with him. And I'm I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. It starts with an E, and you can read about it in the book of Acts. It's it's, it's like four or five syllables. Anyway, they sent a guy to go help the Apostle Paul. So as Paul looks at all the things they did, he looks back and he says, you know what? I thank you for your partnership for the financial blessings, for the, for the way you've prayed for me, for the, for the person you sent to be with me. It's just amazing what you've done to help me. And uh, verse 6, he goes on to say this. I thank you for that, being confident of this, that he, God, began a good work in you. And he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So there was this blank canvas, and God started something. He started drawing something. Paul says, we started something great, and it's going to be completed by God. And the thing they started was this partnership in the gospel. That they were taking something and sharing it in an extraordinary way. And they were investing not just in one guy to share his message. They were investing in a message that would change the world. And Paul says, we started something great. God started among you. I wouldn't be able to do any of this if it wasn't for you. And God is the one who will carry it to completion. And um, just as I think back, there have been times in my life where I helped to support missionaries, whether it was through a grade school offering donation thing or just a little bit here and there, you know, a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks. What we did was we'd send this money off to a missionary along with a letter saying, go get them and we're praying for you and all that stuff. And what would always happen is we'd get a letter back from the missionary a week or a couple weeks or a few months later. And the missionary would say, thank you so much for your gift. We've been doing this. We've been reaching this many people a week. We had 50 bazillion baptisms. We had a VBS with 2,000, whatever. He's just sharing all this stuff that that they've been able to do. And I would always think, well, wait a minute. We hardly did anything. We sent you a couple hundred bucks. You know, we didn't really do all that much. Why are you giving us all this, all this praise? And, and maybe the people in Philippi were thinking the same thing. Paul, you're this great apostle. You can argue people out of unbelief like nobody else. 
And Paul says, he goes on, he says, no, 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 it's right for me to think this. Because here's what's happening. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and, and confirming the gospel, no matter what I'm doing, you are here with me. And he goes on, for all of you share in God's grace with me. This is so deep. All of you sitting in Philippi are sharing something with me. God can testify. God is my witness. I love all of you with the, love, with the heart of Jesus himself. And there's this close relationship there. Now, now here's what the people in Philippi understood. When it came to navigating culture, they, could, they, they were Roman citizens. They were affluent people. It was kind of a wealthy area. Those Christians in Philippi could have found a politician. Said, hey, here's some money. Make some changes. Uh, those people in Philippi could have said, you know what? We're going to feed the hungry. And they, they probably did. But before they did either of those things, the people in Philippi, those Christians understood, in order to steer culture, you must bring people to the gospel. And so what they did was they leveraged their resources so that people could be drawn towards the good news about Jesus. What if we did that? What if we could leverage our resources to direct people towards the gospel? And I'll apply this real quickly. Um, some of you, maybe, some of you have a, a, a favorite politician or a favorite up-and-running candidate, and you want to support them, and that's great, that's fine, that's good. If you find a good politician, just let me know. <laughs> See, now I'm offend, that's my First Amendment right, so I can offend, offend anybody I want to. But here's the thing. If, if we're looking to politicians to change the world, here's basically what we're saying. Or, or the other thing, if, if we're just looking for a voting block to change the world, to change our culture, here's what we're saying. We're saying we're more interested in conforming people's behavior than we are in reforming their hearts. And that is something that Martin Luther very well understood 498 years ago yesterday as he, as he nailed this thing to the chapel door, which was legal. They were allowed to do that, by the way. It's not like he was breaking any rules. He nailed these theses to the, to the chapel door to say, you know what? The church is not here to conform people's behavior. The church is here to reform people's hearts. And that happens by sharing the gospel. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that we do a great job of that as a congregation. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying that the drive, the passion that this congregation have is all about that gospel ministry. And so I want to, I want to let you know, if you need to, to, to use your resources somewhere, this is a good place to use them. Um, and, and it's so awesome as we look at our vision for the next few years also. We're doing this feasibility study. How can we reach even more? How can we use our resources as a church to reach even more. And in a couple of weeks, we'll talk more about that specifically, but just let this simmer in your mind. How can I use my resources to really make a difference? And then Paul goes on. He doesn't just say, here's where we're headed. We don't just want to lead people towards the gospel. How do we get there? How exactly do we do that? And how do we steer the ship? And so the last part of his, this section tells us about this. Uh, the first five words demand you to stop in your tracks and think about this. He says, and this is my prayer. Anytime you see that in the Bible, stop. Because the Holy Spirit is telling you, this is what God wants for you. If God prayed to himself, this is what he would be praying about for you. 
His prayer is that your love would abound. It'd grow more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. And I'll illustrate that real quickly. It's hard to love somebody, isn't it? It can be hard to know how to love somebody. And when you're newlywed, it's like, oh, we love each other. We're sharing everything. Life is good. And then you start to notice, why am I so bitter? Why is she so bitter? What's going on? Why is it? And then after a while, you start to actually communicate. Yeah, it, it hurts my feelings when you don't acknowledge that I did the dishes. Really? I didn't know that. So as you learn more, that's when you can love more. It's, it's hard to love somebody And you know what? It's impossible. This is so important. It's impossible to love somebody if you do not know them. It is impossible to navigate with with truth and grace if you do not know who you're supposed to love. So so what Paul is saying here is continue to grow in in your love. And the way to grow in your love is to grow in your knowledge and understanding. And as that happens, this will happen. Uh, you will be able to discern what is best. And I want to posit that word real quickly. The word for the um, best in Greek, it literally means something is, is poking through. Something is being carried through. Something is making a difference. So as you learn to love somebody, you will learn to pick the thing, not that makes a point. You'll learn to, to do the thing that makes a difference. And so he, so he kind of goes on. I know it's getting complex. We'll, we'll make a point of this in a second. Then he says this, and not just to make a difference, but so that you can be pure. I'll go back one real quick. So that you can be pure and blameless. And, and right away when, when you hear those words, when I hear those words, I automatically think, okay, relationship of God. God wants me to be pure and blameless before him. And sometimes that's the way the Bible uses it. But the way Paul uses it here, he's not talking about pure and blameless in God's sight because you automatically think, well, I can't do that can't be pure, can't be blameless. What Paul is saying, he wants you to be pure and blameless for other people. You see, as you grow in your knowledge of them, you will learn not to call them old people. (laughs) As you grow in your knowledge and as you love people more and more, you will learn what aggravates them. And he says, look, I want you to be pure. I want you to be blameless. Literally, I don't want you to provoke somebody to anger. I don't want you to make people hate you until the day of Christ Jesus. How long is that? Until God says you're done. Continue to grow in knowledge so you can love people, so you can pick what makes a difference, so that nobody will have a reason or a basis to hate you. Um, in, in fact, as you, as you look at that, the thing about hating is that we're not demonstrating the kind of love that God wants us to demonstrate. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, this, this is kind of hard. We'll wrap it up in just a second to see how it finishes up. First of all, verse 11, and then, then we'll get to our last our third fill-in. It says, as you do this, as you learn, as you love, as you pick what's making a difference, you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And th- those two words are so important, through and to. Fruit isn't yours. You're not filling out this painting. You're not finishing the good work. This is through God. This is through Jesus Christ. And it's not to make a big deal about you. This is for the glory of God. Fill in number three. It takes a little bit of explanation. 
Let's go ahead and put it up, though. There's one reason for the world to hate you. There should only be one reason for the world to hate you. And I'll start with the second one. It's not because of what you do. And, and that, here's what I mean by that. As the world looks at you, you should be a model of Christ. And we've talked about this all throughout the series. You should be reaching out, not just with truth, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, or you should be better, or I'm going to judge you. That's not the way we reach out. The way that we reach out to people is, is not by making them angry. The, the way we reach out is with truth and the fullness of grace. So as you demonstrate Christ-like love in your heart, there should be no reason at all for people to point at you and say, oh my goodness, how self, oh wait, you're not selfish. Why are you so nice all the time? You know what? I, you're just so nice and friendly and, and you, you, you believe weird things. That's why I don't like you. If, if anyone has a reason to hate you, let it be because of the weird things you believe about Jesus Christ. They look at you and say, you're so nice, but you believe Jesus is the Son of God? You believe he died and came back to life? You believe that he's living even today? I hate you. <laughs> if, if people hate you, let it be because of the weird things you believe, not because of the life you live. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect all the time. It means when we mess up, we, say, we, we own up to it. You say, you know what? What I did was wrong. It was inexcusable. I, I, need your, I need your forgiveness. And in that kind of a life, people will look at you and they'll say, you know what, there's no reason for me to hate you other than you're not of this world. You belong to Jesus. And, and as we put this all together, we're trying to wrap up. Okay, so in this letter, Paul has, has clearly outlined, if, if we were at the steering wheel of culture, we would want to lead people to the gospel. And we would want to do it in such a way that we're not drawing criticism and we're not making people hate us, but we're making people uh, love our life but hate what we believe if that's what they're going to hate us for. So those are the, the, that's the where and that's the how. Now as we wrap up this series, I guess we just need to answer the question, why are we making such a big deal about this? Um, did Jesus come to navigate culture or did he come to navigate death? And as you think about you know, loved one, maybe it's yourself, people who are going through just a hard, difficult time, people who have lost loved ones, and maybe you're looking at someone you love who's going through something, and you're thinking, why are we spending this time talking about culture of all things? And here's why. Right now, you and I have a very unique window of opportunity that we will never have again for all of eternity. As we look at navigating culture, it's not just to make our lives better or to make things better for our children. That's not the point. What we have right now is a unique window where we get to show the light of God in a place where it's dark. And you know what? For all eternity, when you're in heaven, it will not be dark because God himself will be the light. And once you're in heaven, once you're in eternity, things won't change anymore. It's not like you can make it... A difference anymore. But as long as you have life and breath on this earth, you have a chance to make an eternal difference in somebody's life. So as we navigate culture, it's not just to make the, the world around us better. The, the way we navigate culture is so that we can be a bright light even as our culture gets darker and darker.
Um, last fill in here, then we're going to finish up. You can only have, you only have this life to make an eternal difference. And this is such a precious time that God gives to each of us. And by the way, the eternal difference that we make is by leading people to the one who navigated death for us. God calls you to be pure. He calls you to be blameless. He calls you to learn so you can love. You're forgiven. God forgave you. And now he equips you to go out and and with his truth and grace to forgive others and to navigate culture like it's never been navigated before. Um, As as we close up, uh, let me uh, say a prayer for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the love you demonstrated for us in Jesus. You could have come just with truth to condemn us and to show us our faults, but instead you came with a perfect full measure of truth and grace so that you could save us. There needed to be a reconciliation because your truth needed to be satisfied. Your your judgment needed to be carried out. And I thank you that in your love, you took that judgment on yourself instead of on us. Help us and equip us to use our resources and our gifts and abilities to draw more and more people towards your life-changing gospel and help us to live such lives uh, that, that we would give glory to your name in this world and that we would demonstrate what it means to be forgiven and loved by you. Bless us as individuals and as a church as we go forward in that task. In Jesus' name we pray as we also pray the, the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll have a moment here to uh, gather an offering if you'd like to, uh, if, if you're a member and this is your regular way of returning your thanks to the Lord. Um, if, if you're a guest with us, you're invited uh, to, to show your appreciation through the offering, but please don't feel obligated to do so. It's, it's our pleasure, it's our um, honor to have you here with us today. As we do that, could you please, if you're on the inside or outside of each aisle, take that binder that's uh, in front of you or to your side, fill out however much information you're comfortable with, and then pass it to those in your row. Thank you.